for the culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies, so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Thank you for giving us the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. And today we're going to consider 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're a group of Christians seeking to be a non-nominational group of disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to be of encouragement to you. Please let us know what you think of our conversation in the comments, and please reach out to us if we can be of service at venicechurchofchrist.org. Peter has been writing to the Christians of Asia Minor, and he's been trying to encourage them in this time they're going through of suffering and distress. In chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 10, he gave them great encouragement based on their rebirth through the resurrection, the hope of their salvation, the great value of their salvation, the importance of holiness and love, how they are sustained by God's message that the Christians are a temple and as the spiritual Israel. And then beginning in chapter 2 and verse 11 through chapter 3 and verse 9, he encourages them to keep honorable conduct before all people because uh, they're going to be looking and they're going to be watching and they are going to revile. And so the point is that they're supposed to keep their conduct so that they will be made foolish when that reviling happens. And then Peter considers what it means to look like a Christ follower in suffering the way Jesus suffered in terms of being a Christian slave, a Christian wife, a Christian husband, and in general. From chapter 3 and verse 10 until right about here in chapter 4 and verse 6, we have this core exhortation from Peter to have the mind of Christ suffering, to no longer find satisfaction in the flesh, to bless when reviled, to entrust themselves to God when they are reviled. And in the midst of this, he then declares that the culmination of all things is near. So just like he has before in chapter 2, try to frame his exhortation in terms of because the people around you are acting this way, because they're looking to catch you in something, this is why you have to act a certain way. And he's doing that same framing here. He's not getting necessarily away from the earlier one. The earlier one is still there. But he's now adding what we would call an, an apocalyptic frame. Um, we call it apocalyptic because it's looking toward the culmination or the end of things. Apocalyptic is something that people hear and often their brains fall out. We need to be very clear about what we mean and careful about what we mean because we have, throughout the New Testament, a very apocalyptic worldview. Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet. The apostles look forward to an apocalyptic experience, and of course, Revelation is the apocalypse and full of all kinds of apocalyptic type things. What we're talking about when we talk about such things is that Peter is expecting the end of all things to come, and many will suggest that this means that they think Peter was expecting that Jesus is going to return very quickly in the first century. And in fact, many people will go about saying that, well, the apostles didn't think it was going to last that long, and that's why they wrote what they did instead of what they did. And it's not wise to do that. It's not wise to presume 
that Peter has been proven wrong in his expectation. Because it assumes that we're looking at a temporal framework, that, well, the culmination of all things is near, i.e. the time is coming soon, when Peter could well be looking at it in terms of the dramatic arc, or the arc of the drama of God and his people. Because if you look at the arc of the story of God and his people, and you see all of the various points at which God has done various things, we now only have one stage left, and that is the return of Jesus. And so in that scheme, we are very much close to the culmination of all things. The end of all things is near because of that. And there's a multitude of verses throughout the New Testament that shows that God's direct intervention on earth is going to bring the end. In Matthew 25, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, and 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. And so what he's saying here, he's making this demonstrate, declaration, right? Um, the culmination of all things is at hand, and it's going to kind of frame all of these exhortations that he is going to provide for the Christians. And so we need to keep this in mind as we look at the rest of what he has to say. The culmination of all things is at hand. The end is near. And we do not know when that end is coming. It could have come in Peter's own day. It could come in our day. Uh, and... Even if it does not come in our day, we do not know what's going to happen in our own lives and when we will have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And so, he's encouraging them to maintain this framework as well. That not only do we need to keep in mind what's going on with all the unbelievers out here, we also need to keep in mind the fact that we don't know when the end will come for us. And so he then says, Be self-controlled and sober-minded, for the sake of prayer. This is something also seen in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8, uh, when Paul is discussing a similar situation. So what does it mean to be of sound mind and to be sober? And why would we do that to prayer? Uh, to be of sound mind and to be sober. Uh, sound mind is a healthy mind. That's why self-controlled here, the idea that you are in control of your faculties, you're not being uh, led by anything, you're not being driven by anything, uh, that you are in control of your faculties. And sober-mindedness is very interesting, because sobriety, then as now, is mostly something we talk about in terms of, of alcohol, uh, and by extension, uh, other recreational drugs in our own age. The idea of being sober is being free from those intoxicants. But what we can see very clearly throughout time is that while alcohol can intoxicate and drugs can intoxicate, we can see in other ways and respects how other things can intoxicate. So um, we can see that uh, a desire for money can intoxicate, a desire for sex may intoxicate, power, fame, uh, desire for entertainment, I mean sports, anything can thus intoxicate if it is taken to that level. And for the sake of prayer is because prayer is our communication with God, and it's very difficult to be able to pray when you do not have that kind of sober mind, when you are uh, engaged in all these various distractions, uh, intoxicants that are around you. And it's not even just for the sake of prayer in, in the abstract. Again, it goes back to the culmination of all things is near. That the exhortation in Romans 13 and in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that we are to be people of the light, people of the day, not of the darkness, not of the cavorting and the drunkenness and the revelry that attends to the night, but the kind of uh, sober-minded, clear thinking of the day, because, again, the end is near. Uh, one of our great temptations uh, is that we 
presume that we've got all this time and therefore we spend some of our time in less than in ideal behaviors that we uh if we are go we may not be going out and actually sinning and that of course is a major problem but even if we're not going out so far as sinning that we may focus a lot of our time on things that are lesser goods and neglecting the greater goods and that's why peter introduces for us this uh emphasis about time to realize that it is a uh very limited resource for us and we need to be careful about how we uh, use it and how uh, we are spending our time in it. And there's an expectation that because the end is near, because the culmination is coming, Christians are going to spend time in prayer, a considerable amount of time in prayer perhaps, uh, be praying about the end, praying about the situations around them, and toward one another. And that's what we get to with verse 8 to above all keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. This is not even the first time that Peter has emphasized the idea of love. Back in chapter 1 and verse 22, you have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love, so love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's this continued emphasis on the importance of love for one another. And this is very important specifically for the Christians of Asia Minor because they are dwelling in the midst of a hostile culture. They are not going to expect or be able to find the kind of succor and support from the community around them. Therefore, the community of God's people becomes all important about that. The idea of love covering a multitude of sins is a proverbial statement. It comes from Proverbs 10.12. We can see it in James 5 and verse 20. A lot of times people try to figure out in a forensic way if it has something to do with our relationship with God. But again, we want to look and see the focus here. And the focus is on love for one another, i.e. for the fellow Jesus people. And it's about relationship with one another. And the fact that love covers a multitude of sins is more about the fact that when you have love for somebody, you're willing to absorb and endure and forgive those sins especially the way Peter is using it here. Uh, it may not even be the idea that because you love your sins are being forgiven as much as when you love, you're willing to overlook certain offenses because of your dedication to the people. And this is very important because in light of the hostility they're experiencing and in light of the fact that the Lord could return any time or the culmination of all things is near, they don't have time to get divided by all of those petty squabbles that often attend to uh, Christians in, in local congregations. They need to love one another. They, they, what's going on is too difficult. Uh, the le not a time left is too short. Uh, the obstacles are too challenging to not be there for one another. And it's very interesting that you can see uh, a church in decadence versus a church militant in terms of that kind of love. A church in decadence where there's not a lot of external forms of pressure or persecution very easy for them to turn inward, to start becoming very divided uh, over things that are ultimately very little, if any, uh, substance or importance, whereas where there is that significant pressure, uh, you see uh, a recognition of what's really important and the importance of one another, and it leads to uh, softening of some of that uh, divisive in spirit that can often take place, and all the more so when you keep in mind that our time is short. And life is too short to allow yourself to be completely torn up and burned up by uh, the way that others have mistreated you. 
And it's not to say, and Peter's not trying to say that the mistreatment is well, fine, and dandy, or that it should be justified or excused. It is a recognition of what's what's really important here, what's really going on, what time is it, uh, what's going on. And of course, the, the same message is very interesting to see how consistent this message is in Scripture. In John 13, 31 through 35, uh, the new commandment that John Jesus gives in John is, you should love one another as I have loved you that you be known as my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul will rhapsodize about love, and so beautiful, right? So flower used in so many weddings, but it's not being used in a wedding. It's being used to tell the Corinthian Christians the importance and found, fundamental importance of love for one another. 1 John chapter 4, 7-21, another very powerful passage. Uh, we, we love because God first loved us, uh, but it's to the end that we love one another. Verse 7, verse 21, all of that's bracketed by you need to love one another. And it goes back to chapter 3, where you know people say, well, I'll, I'll love you so much, I'll die for you, right? No greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And then he'll go on and say, but if you aren't willing to give the world's goods to somebody that you love and need, how can you say you really love them, right? So that that gets back to what's really important. How are we really looking at this? And it's a, it's a good wake-up call for us today where a lot of times we want to keep our financial house in order and our house in order by making sure things are provided well for the future. And we're looking to how can we you know, benefit ourselves when we retire or for our children in the future, so on and so forth. May not be looking as much around us at the need right now. And the realization is that we have no guarantee about that future. And, and it's not to say we should have no concern about that future, but we have to ask ourselves, what if the Lord Jesus returns today and I am going to be judged by based on what I have done right now? And if I have stored up all of this stuff and benefit for myself and, and, and those who I love for later, but I have not provided for other people in their needs at the moment, it may not go very well for me. Because it will hard for me, be hard for me to say, yeah, I have loved my brethren. I have demonstrated that love for one another the way I should have. If I have not spent the time, if not, not poured the resources into them in the here and now, because that's all that we really have is the here and now. And so... Uh, the New Testament is far more skeptical and suspicious of the amount of financial planning and future planning uh, than is something that we see in many parts of Christianity, especially in conservative, evangelical and conservative Christian spaces. And we need to hear that critique. We need to be willing to uh, internalize that uh, and realize that we need to be careful with how we plan in light of the fact that the culmination of all things is at hand. Peter then continues, Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Verse 9. And it flows from the idea of loving one another. Because showing hospitality is supposed to be a tendency of Christians in Romans 12 and verse 13. It's something that elders and widows are supposed to be known for in Titus 1.8, 1 Timothy 3.2, and 1 Timothy 5.10. The Hebrews author will talk about the importance of it, that some have thus entertained angels unawares in Hebrews 13.2 going back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and uh, the three, uh, Yahweh and the two angels in Genesis 18 and Lot in Genesis 19. And when we look at the word, uh, it's a love of strangers. Um, and But notice here what he says, that it is show hospitality to one another. He's not expecting them to be opening up to just anybody. He's not expecting them to open up to Christians in many other locations. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm not saying this would be wrong. In fact, we'll see in other passages in the, in the Bible where there's commendation for opening up to uh, Christians from other places. 
but what he's focusing on here, and it's always good to make sure that we're focusing on what the apostles are focusing on as opposed to just taking them and generalizing them, is hospitality to one another, which means that they need to be involved in one another's lives. Um, yeah, you look back at what Jesus says about what do you gain if you love those who love you? What do you get if you invite people over just to be have other people invite you over? There's absolutely that concern in terms of how do we help those who are in need. However, Jesus is not trying to suggest that having those situations where you are engaging with people that you love is wrong or is inappropriate. He's trying to say that doesn't make you as great as you think it does. But Peter here is focusing on why it is important. And it comes here because of really how core and critical it is. Uh, we are to love one another fervently. Well, how do we love one another fervently? How can we do that? Love is something that can only be manifest in relationship. Uh, God is love, and God is one in relational unity. That's the message of the New Testament. Uh, God has shown us love. Uh, and has invited us to share in relational unity with him and with one another. To have relational unity requires situations and circumstances by which one comes to know and trust one another in order to cultivate and develop those friendships. And as important as our time in the assembly is, and the acts of the assembly in which we participate, that is not enough or sufficient or even the right context to be able to fully develop and foster those relationships. And this gets us into the major challenge that we have, that when we reduce the idea of the assembly to worship, or Christian life is worship, and we kind of look at it only in terms of or worship in terms of these you know, acts of the assembly, and we make Christianity about making sure that you uh, study the Bible, pray, and go to church, that we're missing out on this vital component, which is this hospitality which is just as much a command in the New Testament as all the other things just mentioned, just as important. And you can see those kind of congregations where everybody has a surface knowledge of one another. You can tell in a minute when they're not involved in each other's lives. You can tell in a minute that they're not really getting deep with one another. And it affects everything. Everybody's putting on the holy face. People can't be real with one another. You don't have people really getting to know each other. And that's not going to be healthy. Hospitality is a time of show, maintaining table fellowship. In the context in which Peter is speaking, the absolute expectation is Christians are opening their homes to one another. And they're doing it without complaining. They're not supposed to look at it as a burden or a chore, but they're looking at it as a grace, as a gift, as, an as a wonderful opportunity to share with one another. Um, in that context, that's how that made sense. And I think in most contexts, it's going to make sense to welcome people into your home. And to be that hospitable, to, to, to break down that barrier and to provide for the opportunity to be open. But if there are situations where it would make more sense to be hospitable by sharing table fellowship at a local restaurant or at a park or something like that, the spirit of it is to have that table fellowship, to have that time sharing a meal. And the act of sharing a meal is a, is a sharing of space, a sharing of time, a sharing of getting, you know, where there's an expectation of that kind of conversation. And we're really focusing on that nature of relationship because it's not hospitality merely for hospitality's sake. You're showing hospitality to welcome people into your lives. Uh, you think about what is hospitality. Hospitality is to welcome 
people into your space. This is your space. You are now opening it up to welcome people into your space. And as we're supposed to be doing that in a physical way, we're, we're supposed to be also doing that in a relational way because the goal is not just to be at each other's house. If we just eat at each other's house and don't get to know one another, uh, we've not really fulfilled the commandment because the idea of hospitality is to turn the love of a stranger into a love of a fellow person where the person ceases to be a stranger because of that association maintained in that context, in that situation. That is why it is so important for us to be willing to do that work of building relationships. And what we can do about that is that we can make the determination that we're going to try to make or find opportunities to spend that time with fellow Christians, and that when we do that, we are going to take the risk and we are going to try to cultivate that trust by being the ones who are going to be open and to let people into our lives. That it's not just, I'm not just letting in my house, but I'm going to be closed off to you relationally. That I'm willing to open up my heart, my myself to you as much as I'm opening up my house to you. And that is going to lead to some uh, hurt at times and some betrayal at times. But the goal of God's work in relational unity is far too important for us to then say, well, I've been hurt, so I'm closing off. Because when that happens, though, we've allowed the devil to win. Especially with the hostility in the culture and with the fact that the time is near, we, we need to really get to know one another better. We really need to be able to work well with one another better because you're not going to be able to truly encourage and strengthen and sustain one another unless you know each other. And you've got to spend time together to get to know one another. Peter continues, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And this is going to frame the the next couple verses. So we have love one another, Show hospitality as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. So let's look at both parts of that. First, as each has received a gift. Unfortunately, a lot of people have associated the idea of the gift with the charismata, the charismata, the speaking in tongues, prophecy, and and special insight and knowledge that was given in the days of the apostles and immediately afterward through the Spirit to provide encouragement and strength for the Christians. And in fact, uh, it is very easy for many to take a, an overly maximal view of 1 Corinthians 13 and imagine that when Peter, I mean, John, Peter, Paul, excuse me, is speaking of uh, prophecy, speaking tongues and knowledge, that he's using that to describe all kinds of gifts. And that has led us down a very bad path. Because as Peter's making clear here, God has given us all gifts. God has given us all abilities. You go back to Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. What are the talents? Why do we call the abilities that we have, the skills we have, talents? It comes from that word. It's not the way it's being used in the Greek. It's not the way Jesus is using it in the context in the parable itself. Because a talent at that point, talent is money. And so they have money and they're leveraging that money to make more money in the parable. But when you come to the spiritual application, well, what money, what, what is the currency that we have in the kingdom of God? The currency that we have is the gifts that God has given us. Um, at the first century, some of that might have been uh, the ability to prophesy, speak in tongues, things of that nature. But if you notice, prophecy, speaking in tongues, that's very much spirit-directed in, in a way where the 
person becomes more of a vessel through which that is working. There's all kinds of other ways that we have gifts and abilities. And that's why the word talent now means those skills and abilities. And the question is, how do we want to leverage them? So Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 11, uh, in their spiritual gifts. And some of the spiritual gifts are very much spirit-enhanced and spirit-directed and spirit-guided. Uh, but but the spirit is still giving us gifts that we think of as our own, quote-unquote, and natural, quote-unquote. Uh, some of us have a better ability to speak than others. Some of us have a better inclination to give than others. Some of us are better skilled at understanding how to uh, build things or fix things. Uh, some things come naturally to some people better than others. Those are all the different ways God has made us. God has given us these gifts. We are stewards of them. This is such an important framework that he is giving us here as we're going to see uh, the importance of the nature of these gifts as as being a steward of them and that we're using them to serve one another. What that means is that why do we have the gifts? What are we supposed to do with the gifts that we have? When we grow up in, in our culture and society, we are taught that, okay, as you cultivate various skills, things that come naturally, things that come natural that you have honed through effort and experience, and things that you have had to really work hard on to cultivate, that you're supposed to leverage them to your advantage and self-aggrandizement. Uh, the majority of the way we see it today, especially in late capitalism, is making money on it, right? Uh, we go to school to learn how to do something to make money. So, oh man, I have an ability to, to speak to people. I need to go and become somebody who can make money by speaking to people. Uh, I'm really good with my hands at building things. I'm going to go be a builder, make things, and make money. Um, I'm really good at selling things. I'm going to go sell things and make money. Uh, whatever that might be, that's the kind of situation that we are looking at. And what Peter's trying to do here, by telling us to use it to serve one another, is that we need to understand how all the gifts God has given us are to be used to encourage, to encourage one another, to help one another, to benefit one another. Where if I have whatever gift I've been given, I need to direct to that end, not just for uh, my own self-aggrandizement, for my own purpose. And that's what we need to bring the rest of these verses in. As good stewards of the varied grace of God, whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies. So he's giving some examples of this. So whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. So here's a person who has the ability to speak. The words he's supposed to speak are God's words. Um, we can see that as a prophet, right? The whole idea of a prophet is a prophet is somebody who is uh, God has spoken to them and they are to speak what God speaks to the people. Um, even if we do not have the prophetic gift where we are inspired by the Spirit as Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Jesus were, when we speak, we're supposed to still speak God's words. Our words are supposed to be rooted in what God has made known in Christ and in Scripture. And we should be speaking to one another in these ways. Is this a message for preachers? Absolutely. Is it a message for elders? Absolutely. Is it a member, mem message for the average Christian? Quote unquote? Absolutely. We're all, when we're speaking, should be doing it with God's words. Interesting. Whoever serves as doing so with the strength that God supplies. Uh, serving ministration is such a huge part of the Christian life. Um, in, in the modern world, we've seen how 
uh, especially in the Western world, categorization and systematization, systematization, which has been the rage in the past couple hundred years, have led to all of these con concepts of ministries, right? Where that's what people will call their work as a 501c3. It's everything from the ministry of going and preaching the gospel to, you know, I have this ministry where I go and help fix cars for people or, or I go and help serve the homeless or whatever it may be. Uh, and there's a noble spirit there that's being overly formalized and systematized. But we all should be seeing ourselves as ministers. Minister is not a title that is given to preachers uniquely or specifically in the New Testament. Minister is something we're all supposed to be doing. We're all supposed to have our ministry. And what's interesting here is notice how Peter constantly anchors it in God, that we are to use the gifts we're given to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, and that when we're serving, we're supposed to do so with the strength that God supplies. That idea of stewardship is so important, and it is so contrary to our current spirit that is very much more about domination. Uh, we currently have a very unhealthy relationship with the world around us, uh, the relationship we have the world around us is that we are dominating it and we are exploiting its resources. And it's a, it, is a, it is an exploitation. We dig stuff out. We, we, we clear cut to build what we want. We plant the fields that we want. And we are looking at very much as we are the master and we are beating the land into submission to work for us. And people think, well, back in Genesis 1, right? All these other things. It is a distortion and a warping of God's purposes and God's message to suggest that God has blessed our domination in that sense. Yes, we are given dominion, but to what end? To be stewards. The stewardship model is the one that you have predominantly. God put Adam in the garden to keep it and tend it. Yes, he was dominant over everything in the garden, but not in order to exploit it not in order to clear-cut it for his advantage or purpose. He was there to be a steward of it. He was given it by God. God made the garden, and it was Adam's job to keep it up. Likewise, God has given us everything that we have in our. God has given us this creation. God has given us our abilities. God has given us our skills. God has given us the people we have in our lives. God has given us the prosperity we enjoy. And it's not now, because here's the problem with the domination exploitation. And the domination exploitation idea becomes my property, and I can use my property any way I want. But we have the stewardship model. We understand nothing that I have or am is mine. I can't claim to own any of it because it doesn't come from me. It is all the gift of God that I have been commanded. I have been given this stuff as a stewardship. I am thus to leverage it in ways that glorify God. And... That is a very profoundly different way of looking at things. That is what can empower us to realize, oh, the time that I have needs to be spent in uh, prayer, in, in showing hospitality, in loving one another, serving one another, and promoting, uh, doing the same thing to, another, to a different degree to those outside in the world. That, oh, everything that I am and have is not how great I am, but it has been God giving me the opportunity through what he has given me in terms of the time, the, uh, the skills, the people in my lives to help cultivate these things, that I can use these things to glorify him. How can I use what I have to glorify God? Part of it is to provide for myself and those I love. Absolutely. Not trying to deny that. But another thing is to take that and use it to serve one another and to serve other people. Because uh, that is how God is glorified in these things. God has given me a place to live. Part of the way I glorify God, that is to live there, to take care of it, but also to open up so other people can come and share in life with me there. Um, 
And what's interesting here is that even when it comes to how we serve, it's not about how great we are or us expending ourselves that purpose, that we are to serve with the strength that God supplies. And I don't know how much we really emphasize that. Doing with the strength that God supplies. That even in our working, even as we strive to encourage one another and to work for one another and to benefit one another, that we're not doing it by just our own energy, but that we're doing it through the strength that God supplies. Because again, as human beings, we are much more weak and frail and limited than we care to admit. It is only when we are allowed to do these things through the strength God provides. And this is not something that's a first century only thing. This is something that is supposed to be a continual thing. That we're supposed to be continually praying to God to give us that strength so that we can love one another, so that we can do these things. And what is so bitterly lamentable to me is how many times I've had a conversation with very well-meaning Christians who have never stopped to think how the things that they have learned and cultivated in the world, in their degree, in their job, can be used to benefit members of the people of God in the kingdom. That they've never thought about how their talents could be used in the kingdom. That when you ask them about what can you do for the kingdom, they're going to start talking about the things they can do in the assembly which is important but dim and limited compared to this picture that Peter is giving us in 1 Peter chapter 4. That sure, the assembly is involved in all these things, but it goes well beyond the assembly, doesn't it? In fact, most everything he's talked about here, while it has some relationship to what we do in the assembly, that it's expected and assumed to be well outside of the assembly and something that is a continual thing that we are doing. And it's all to be done so that in everything... God will be glorified through Jesus Christ, and it's to him that belongs the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Everything that we have and are, that we expend through his strength, that he be glorified, that we welcome one another and grow in relationality, that he may be glorified, that we love one another so that we can be loved like he is loved and glorify him, that we are sober-minded and self-controlled for prayer to glorify him. All of this goes to glorify him because when the culmination of all things happens, he will be glorified. He will be glorified in Jesus Christ. Let us therefore be working in the kingdom, always prepared for the end, leveraging everything God has given us to his glory and honor, not looking at anything as our own, but as the gifts God has given us that we are to share with others to do all things by the strength God supplies, to make it far less about us and much more about God, that he be glorified now and forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have any questions or comments about anything we've talked about, we'd love to hear. Please let us know what you think about 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 or anything we've talked about in the comments and subscribe to us. Let us quickly go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father. We need to be thankful because everything we have in our comes from you. You have given us life. You have given us this creation. You have given us the people in our lives. You have given us, above all things, Jesus, and the fact that we can be redeemed in him, that we can be restored in relationship to you and to your people, and that you give us every spiritual blessing and gift in Jesus. We're so thankful for this. And because we are thankful for this, Father, we pray that you would give us a mind to understand and to maintain that perspective always, that we are not owners of things and we are not great, but we are given everything that we have as gifts from you, that everything we have and are is a gift from you, and that you have given us those gifts to be stewards of those gifts, to cultivate them and to leverage them to be 
of value to benefit us in terms of allowing us to have a, a, a living, but also to be a benefit to others, that we can serve one another and to be uh, loving and caring for one another and for all with whom we come into contact. And let us not grow in our conceit that we can do it through our own strength. Let us always depend on your strength. And we pray that you would give us that strength. Give us the strength in our inner man. Give us the strength in our outer man through your spirit that we can be empowered to serve, to glorify you, to honor you, so that you will be all in all and your purposes and relational unity and cultivation will be accomplished. And we earnestly look forward to knowing it's a culmination of all things to the return of your Son when you will be all in all in Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're so glad that you've joined us. If we can be of any service to you, if we can help and encourage you in your faith in any way, we want to make good on First Peter 4, 7-11 for you. Please let us know at BenishChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.